Yeah, it's, it's just good to know that there's like-minded brothers and, and sisters here in the Midwest, and I'm thankful, thankful to be here. So I'm going to be sharing God's Word this morning from Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open there, Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Our our focus this morning is going to be on verses 8 and 9, but I'll read verses 1 to 11 for the context. And after I'm going to read the passage. After I finish reading, I want to encourage you to respond, thanks be to God. I'm going to say, this is God's word. If you could say, thanks be to God, if you believe it's God's word, then we can do it like that. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Father, we need you this morning. Apart from you, we can do nothing. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we pray, Lord, that in this time, the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just so you know, I guess I should preface everything by saying that I come from a context where it's common for the congregation to be loud and to say amen and that kind of thing. Now, you don't have to, but I just want to let you know, if you agree with something from God's word, be encouraged to say amen. I, I won't be offended by that. Just, just want to let you know that up front. What is a Christian? 
What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity? Different people give different answers to this question. So if you base it on popular media, the answer, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? It might be something to the effect of Christianity is a religion practiced by judgmental and homophobic people who belong to the Republican Party, watch Fox News all day, and have Sean Hannity as their spokesperson. In many places around the world, if you ask that question, the the answer would be, Christianity is America's religion. Others might say, Christianity is what you see on TBN, or late-night infomercials with weird-looking televangelists. Or, Christianity is filled with people who never have fun, follow a bunch of rules, and spend Friday nights watching the Left Behind movie together. (laughs) Well, before I was a Christian, I would have said something to the effect of, Christianity is based on a book written by men, and it's fine if people want to believe it, but you shouldn't try to force other people to convert to it. The more you hear people on the outside describe what it is, and compare it with the Bible, the more you see how many misconceptions there are. But our main concern today is not with what the outsider's perception of what Christianity is, but with those of us who claim to be Christian, what we believe it is. And I believe that even within the church, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. So we're here in Philippians chapter 3, and we're looking at it in the context of instructions that the Apostle Paul is given to the church at Philippi. And, um, and what we saw earlier in the verses that I just read is that Paul instructs the church to watch out for the Judaizers or the circumcision party, referred to as the dogs or the evildoers in verse 2. The Judaizers were this group of people who were demanding that new Gentile converts be circumcised and conform to the law of Moses. So the Judaizers were saying, yes, to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in his work on the cross, but you also need to be circumcised. And in making that demand, they were adding to the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul was saying, beware of anyone who adds to the gospel. And so he emphasized in verse 3 that true Christians put no confidence in the flesh. That is, Christians do not rely on human effort or characteristics to make themselves right with God. Christianity is not about what we do but about what Christ has done for us in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. And so in verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul begins to use himself as an example, and he begins to run down all the advantages that he had. So if you look at verse 5, he talks about being circumcised on the eighth day. That is a religious advantage. He says he's of the people of Israel. That's an ethnic advantage. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. That's an ancestral advantage. A Hebrew of Hebrews. That's a cultural advantage. As to the law of Pharisee, that's an educational advantage. 
As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's a personality advantage. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a moral advantage. And with all these very real advantages, he's still able to say in verse 7 that he counts all those things as loss for the sake of Christ. And he's using accounting language here and saying that the things that he once thought were assets before God were actually liabilities because they were keeping him from God. And that those things paled in comparison to Jesus. And so in verses 2 to 7, we see what Christianity isn't. It isn't adding to the gospel. It isn't relying on human effort or advantages to be made right with God. And in our verses today, we're looking at it positively. What We're going to talk about what it is. So I want to summarize what this message is about in one sentence and then try to show where I get it from in the text. So here's the sentence. The essence of true Christianity is experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The essence of true Christianity is experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at it in two points, experiential knowledge and saving knowledge. First, experiential knowledge. Look again at verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. True Christianity can be summed up in that last phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But the reason I say experiential knowledge is because of the meaning of the word translated knowing in verse 8 and know him down in verse 10. That word there is not just talking about a knowledge of the facts, but the definition of that term is to know, especially through personal experience or firsthand acquaintance. So experiential knowledge is to be contrasted with mere theoretical knowledge. So it's possible to know who Jesus Christ is, but not actually know him in the way that this passage is talking about. A lot of people, especially in the West, have heard the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is famous. There's been movies about him. There's been countless books written about him. He's been the subject of many religious courses in universities. Many people even use his name when they're mad and can't think of a curse word to use. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard his name all the time. Jesus is famous, but to hear about him is one thing. To actually know him is a different thing entirely. Do you know him? One of my favorite actors is Denzel Washington. I grew up watching a lot of his movies, and a few few years back, I had an opportunity to see him on Broadway. So he was on Broadway uh, acting in a Shakespeare play. And uh, had really good tickets, got to see the show, and it was just like I was completely starstruck, just sitting a few rows back watching one of my favorite actors live. Well, after the performance, I walk out to get ready to leave, and I see that there's a long line because Denzel is personally greeting every single person who came to the show. And so I jump in line. It's like, wow, I'm going to get a chance to meet Denzel, get, get a chance to take a picture with him. And as, as we moved through the line, two things became very apparent. One is that Denzel's taking pictures with people, but there was a fence 
So there was a gate between Denzel and everybody else. In order to take the picture, you had to kind of lean over the fence. The second thing I noticed is that there were two big dudes, bodyguard dudes with big guns right next to Denzel, just in case anybody wanted to act up. They were right there. And so I got a chance to take my picture with him. And if I showed my, that picture to someone, you might think, oh, he knows Denzel, but I don't know him. I just got close enough to be able to take a picture with him. It's not like he's in the contacts in my phone. I can't just call him up. Hey, Denzel, what's going on? No. Well, I think that many professing Christians treat God in this way. They, they get close to God, but there's a, there's a barrier between them and God. And true Christianity is not having that barrier there, but actually there being a true, genuine relationship. Do you know him? Paul doesn't say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing about Christ Jesus. No one is a Christian who has only heard about Jesus. There's many false substitutes for knowing Jesus, and I'll name three. One false substitute for knowing Jesus is doctrinal knowledge. Doctrinal knowledge. Understanding systematic theology. Being able to break down salvation. Reading the Puritans. Knowing all the big theological terms. Those things are fine. They're good. They're important. Pastors are instructed in Titus chapter 2 verse 1 to teach what accords with sound doctrine. But understand this. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine. So that's true. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine. So some people say, ah, forget all that doctrine stuff. Just give me Jesus. Then my next question is going to be, well, who is Jesus? And as soon as you begin to answer that question, you're going to begin to say things like, He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the son of God. He paid for our sins. All of those things are great doctrinal truths. So you, so you can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine, but you can know doctrine without knowing Jesus. So you can know all the right answers. You can know all the right things to say without having a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Doctrinal knowledge is a false substitute for knowing Jesus. False substitute number two, good moral performance. Good moral performance is a false substitute for knowing Jesus. What I mean by that is not committing the so-called big, bad, open sins. Basically being a good person by the world's standards. And this is common for many people who grew up in Christian homes. Because of the influence of parents, And because the conscience has been enlightened by God's word, there's a restraint on the open sin that they commit. So they're not doing the stuff that their non-Christian friends are doing. And over time, they see that good moral performance as what it means to be a Christian. But being a moral person is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. False substitute number three, Christian service or ministry. Christian service or ministry. Consider what the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the Pharisees were going on missions trips 
but they did not know Jesus. In fact, I've met a number of people in my life who were actually converted on missions trips. So they were sent by their churches to share the gospel with other people in a foreign country, and it was there that they actually finally believed the gospel and trusted in Christ for themselves. Christian service is a false substitute for knowing Jesus. So it's possible to be around Jesus, but not to know him. It reminds me of what the Lord Jesus said to Philip in John 14. He said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? The essence of true Christianity is experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this experiential knowledge of God is the promise of the new covenant. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, speaking of the new covenant, it says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. To be a Christian is to know Jesus. And do you notice how personal it is? Notice again at verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not somebody else's Lord. It's not my parents' Lord. It's not my grandmom's Lord or my spouse's Lord. It's my Lord. He has embraced Jesus as his own. Part of my wife's testimony is that she grew up in the church, so she was heavily involved. She sang in the choir, she was teaching the youth, and she assumed that she was saved because of the things that she was doing. And it wasn't until she was an adult that she was presented with the gospel and had her profession of faith challenged. And it was then that she began to see that the warnings of Scripture, the lists of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, actually applied to her. And for the first time, she realized that if she had died at that moment, she would have been condemned. And that's when she was awakened to the good news of the gospel, that Jesus had died for her sins, not just generally dying for sins out there, for random people out there, but for her sins specifically, she could say with the Apostle Paul in verse 8, Christ Jesus, my Lord, it became personal. So all the children in the building, so I see a couple of kids. Hello, I see you. All the children, listen to me, kids. You must believe in Jesus for yourself. Your mom can't believe in Jesus for you. Your dad can't believe in Jesus for you. And children, it is never too early. You are not too young to place your trust in Jesus Christ. Christianity is not something that's just for the older people. You don't have to wait until you get older to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world and he lived a perfect life. He lived the life that none of us could ever live. And he died on the cross for all the bad things that we do. And we do bad things because the Bible teaches that we're born bad. That's why we do bad things. And Jesus, he died on the cross and then he rose from the grave so that everybody who turns from their sins, even you, as young as you are, if you turn from your sins, and place your trust in Jesus, he promises that he will save you and that you'll be able to be with him forever.
you have any questions about that, ask your mom or your dad after the service. He must be my Lord. You must know him for yourself. Is this true of you this morning? Do you know Jesus in this way? If you compare verse 8 to chapter 2, verse 11, in chapter 2, verse 11 of Philippians, it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's looking ahead to the final judgment. So the time is going to come when every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. It's going to be very obvious that Jesus Christ is Lord at that point in the future. But for the Christian, we're happy to bend the knee now. We're happy to confess with our tongues now that Jesus Christ is my Lord. Test yourselves by this. How does a person know if they experientially know Jesus? I think perhaps the simplest question that I could ask, if you're asking this question, is this. Do you love him? Very simple. Do you love Jesus? The true Christian is able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 116 verse 1, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. And love for God is not just merely a sentimental feeling, but is always connected to a corresponding hatred for sin. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands in John 14, verse 15. That's where the Lord part comes in. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. So the true Christian is able to say sincerely with all his or her heart with the hymn writer, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Do you love him? What does this experiential knowledge look like? What does it look like to love Jesus? I think in one sense, it can be hard to put a finger on, but you know it when you see it. A person told me a long time ago that whenever I'm at a wedding and the time comes for the bride to come down the aisle, everyone stands up, turns turns and looks towards the bride and sees her coming down, just arrayed in the splendor of her wedding dress. The person told me, at that moment, if you get a chance, turn back and just peek at the groom and look at the look in the groom's eyes. And if you've ever done that, you see that there's, it's, it's a very <laughs> distinct look. And, and, and that's, that's a sense of it. The idea that there's this big crowded room, all these people here, all this music, all of this but this person only has eyes. It's, the, it's like there's only one person in the entire room. That's, that's love. That's a sense of it. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, sense of sin and deep hatred to it, faith in Christ and love to him, delight in holiness and longing after more of it, love to God's people and distaste for the things of this world, these These are the signs and evidences which always accompany salvation. This is what it means to be a Christian. I think the key is longing after more of it. 
So the believer says, I love Jesus. Oh, that I would love him more. The true believer says, I hate sin. Oh, Lord, that I would hate it more. The true believer says, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And to love Jesus is to be distinguished against seeing Jesus as a mere utilitarian savior, seeing him just as useful, right? So there's many people who would say, well, I, I don't want to go to hell because I'm not, you know, the idea of burning in flames forever, that's not very interesting to me. So can anybody save me from that? Oh, he can do it? Great. And they treat Jesus almost like a life preserver, right? Like a life jacket that you wear. Well, nobody loves a life jacket, right? You use it and it's helpful if you're in the ocean and you can't swim. But after you're done with it, you discard it, right? So nobody's writing love letters to a life jacket. Nobody's bringing flowers home to a life jacket because it only serves utilitarian purposes. Many people treat Jesus in that way. But true Christianity is not just to say, I'll accept you as the one who can rescue me from hell. But no, I love you for who you are. You are in yourself beautiful and a treasure, my deepest delight. That gets at what it means to be a Christian, experiential knowledge. Well, the second point is saving knowledge, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the first was experiential knowledge. The second point is saving knowledge. Look again at the end of verse 8. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so we've seen that there's basically two different kinds of knowledge of Jesus. There's a knowledge of Jesus that does not save and a knowledge of Jesus that does save. And in this passage, we see that in the Apostle Paul's mind, it comes down to righteousness. In verse 9, we see a contrast. The righteousness of my own that comes from the law and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All other human religion outside of Christianity is about some form of a righteousness of my own. Christianity alone is about the righteousness from God. And so when we talk about this, what we're referring to is the glorious truth of justification by faith alone. The idea that God in his mercy justifies those who trust in Jesus Christ. That is, he declares sinners to be righteous on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one thing that we should see is that this is not separate from knowing and loving Christ. This is a part of what it means to know Jesus. So verse 9 is sandwiched between verses 8 and 10, both of which refer to knowing Christ. So an essential part of what it means to know Christ is to know him through his way of salvation. And his way of salvation is justification. This is the Christian gospel, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Justification answers this question. How do sinners get right in the sight of a holy God? Whether you know it or not, that is the most important question in your life this morning. I know we have all kinds of things that we're involved with. We have jobs, we have families, we have relationships, we have financial issues, all those kinds of things. Those, those questions have their place. But the most important question, the ultimate question is, how do I, a person who is born a sinner and compound the, 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 the sin that I've inherited from Adam, I compound that with my own personal sin every day. How is it that I'm going to be able to stand before a righteous, holy God on judgment day? Justification answers that question. The eternal state of our souls depends on how that question is answered. There are a number of ways that people can run from God. So you can run from God by being bad, right? So when I say run from God by being bad, I'm referring to things like Galatians chapter 5, list like Galatians 5, 18 to 21, which says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a picture of what it could look like to run from God by being bad, participating in the big, flagrant, open, vile sins, right? But there's another way that you can run from God, and that is to run from God by being good. So many people are running from God by trying to be good. And you really see a picture of this with uh, Jesus when he speaks about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. So if you remember, the Pharisee in that story, he says he's standing by himself. He prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? So, so that person says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other heathens out there. Right. I thank you that that I do all kinds of good things. I thank you that I have quiet time. I thank you that I'm involved in youth group. I thank you that I'm not like those other other heathens out there. Well, if you're not truly relying on Jesus, that's just another way to run from God. Just by it's just running from him by trying to be good. There's two different kinds of unbelievers. You have irreligious unbelievers and then you have religious unbelievers. The gospel is a third way. It's not irreligion, and it's not merely religion, but it's turning away from anything that I think I can do to make myself right with God and just completely leaning on him, completely trusting in him. That is the gospel. Romans 4 verse 4 and 5 says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. What an amazing statement. God justifies the ungodly. That means there's hope for us. 
to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that word righteousness is the same righteousness that's spoken of in our text in verse 9. And notice in verse 9, he speaks of being found in him, that is, in union with Christ, vital spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of it all. How does a person receive this? By faith, by faith alone, by trusting in Christ alone. And this is relevant for the Christian life. So this, this isn't just the kind of thing where, oh, okay, that's, that's the gospel and that's, yeah, unbelievers need to hear that. And yeah, once they hear that, they can be saved and they can come on in and they can kind of be like us. Like, this is for Christians. This is not just for unbelievers. They just like, some, some people think that, that the gospel is, is what gets you in the door of Christianity and then you move on to the good stuff. But this is the good stuff. The gospel is not just what gets us in the door, but it's the pathway that we walk once we get in. This is how we are to think about our lives is, is in connection with the gospel. It's relevant for the Christian life. Often when Christians sin, it's because we forget where our righteousness comes from. And so we put something different in the blank. So, so Paul speaks about the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But when we sin, what we're doing is we're relying in some way on a righteousness of my own. It could be a righteousness of my own that comes from Christian service. It could be a righteousness of my own that comes from my reputation a righteousness of my own that comes from my job or my willpower, my discipline, my intelligence, being a good parent, my spiritual gifts. Here's an indication that you may be struggling with finding your righteousness in the right place. Here's some indicators. Number one, when you look down on someone else because they struggle with a different sin than you struggle with. So if you see someone struggling with sin and you just kind of, just kind of a little, a little haughty, you, you probably never, never say it, but, but there's an heart attitude of judging them differently than you would judge yourself because their sin struggle is different than yours. Another way to uh, determine if you may be struggling with finding your righteousness in the, in the wrong place is if you always have to be right <laughs> in every conversation, in every debate, or you, or you turn every conversation into a debate and you feel like I, always, I, can't, I can't for a moment just admit, you know what? I'm actually wrong. <laughs> Everything that I just said about that was completely off. And like, yeah, you're right. If you can't do that, if, if to do that, makes you kind of cringe inside, you may be finding your righteousness in the wrong place. If you get mad at people who don't serve in the same way that you serve. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's a known thing that in the church, usually 10% of the people do 90% of the work. So if you're part of that 10% and you're thinking, man, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm working behind the scenes, and this guy over here, he's a member. He seems like he's not active at all. What's wrong with him? Why am I doing all this? And he's not. You may be 
finding your righteousness in the wrong place. Here's another indicator. If you try to appear to be more godly than you actually are, if you try to appear to be more holy and godly than you actually are, you may be finding your righteousness in the wrong place. This has so many implications. This is at the root of most of our relational conflict. Most of our relational conflict, if you boil it all the way down, it comes down to finding our righteousness in ourselves or or judging another person according to their righteousness or our standards of what we think they should be and them not living up to it, and then that producing conflict. Here's, here's a big one. If you cannot forgive someone who sinned against you, if you refuse to forgive someone who has sinned against you, that is an indicator that you're finding your righteousness in the wrong place. One of the things that helped me a while back is realizing that no one has ever sinned against me more than I have sinned against God. So my sin against God is greater than anybody's sin against me. Why? Because when a person sins against me, they're sinning against a fellow sinner. When I sin against God, I'm sinning against the Holy One, the perfect one, the spotless one. Many of us have been victimized by people and hurt in very deep ways. And please understand, God recognizes that hurt. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And he's a just God. So everyone, sin must be paid for. So either sin was dealt with on the cross or that sin will be dealt with on judgment day. But but sin will be dealt with. God is mindful of those who have been hurt. But please understand that as great as that hurt may be, our sin against God is greater. And once we realize that, that can free us up from the bondage of bitterness and resentment and anger towards those who have hurt us. And that comes back to finding our righteousness in the right place. Our righteousness is in Christ. He is my righteousness. It's only through this kind of experiential saving knowledge that we'll be able to properly assess things and see things rightly. Notice in verse 8 that the Apostle Paul, notice how he refers to his accomplishments. He refers to it as rubbish, as street filth, as meant to be thrown to the dogs. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, all our righteous acts are as filthy rags before God. True Christians not only repent of their sin, but they repent of their righteousness. True Christians not only repent of their sin, they repent of their righteousness. John Bunyan, the Puritan, has a a famous quote where he says, the holiest prayer that I've ever prayed has enough sin in it to condemn a whole world. The holiest prayer I've ever prayed has enough sin in it to condemn a whole world. He understood that true Christians repent of our righteousness as well as our sin. 
This is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the, ga- the, the, the gaining of Christ and being found in him. As I close, I want to close with a story in the New Testament about a woman who rightly assessed things. Turn to John chapter 12. And I'm going to read John chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. John 12, beginning at verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. A couple things to notice in this passage. Mary does three things that are absolutely shocking. Number one, verse three, she takes a pound of expensive ointment and pours it out. That expensive ointment was a family heirloom. Most likely, it was the most expensive and valuable thing that they owned. It was worth more than a year's wages. She took all of that and she just poured it out. That was shocking. Number two, she let her hair down. In that society, that was only done in the home. That was a gesture of extreme intimacy. And then shocking thing number three, she wipes her feet with, or his feet with her hair. Do you see Mary's love for Jesus? In this room filled with religious people, she was the wisest person in the room. And she loved Jesus. She was so devoted to him that it didn't matter what other people thought. It didn't matter that other people might look down on her. She had eyes for only one person in that room, and that person was the Lord Jesus Christ. She loved him because she knew him. And Jesus looked favorably upon that. He says, the poor you'll always have with you, but you don't always have me. Judas didn't care about the poor, but Jesus is saying that Mary, she made the right assessment. She counted the most valuable thing that she had as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. May we, by his grace, do the same. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, it's true that he is the most valuable treasure in the universe. And we pray that you would help us to esteem him properly and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I pray for those who may not believe that, um, that even now uh, in, our, in our time together that you would be at work by your spirit to convince of the truthfulness of these things. For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.